0: Well, as some of you know, this week I was in uh, Nashville for a preaching conference. It was a good time. We had uh, 11 other guys from across the country and just got together and nerded out and talked about Greek and things like that. It was a, it was a very good time. Still raging, blazing summer in Nashville, by the way. It, is, it was 96 degrees when I left, and so up here, it's fall, and I was very thankful for that. But when I'm alone and I'm traveling, I like to watch a show called Alone. See how that works? Um, it, it is a show, <laughs> I thought that would be funnier, there, it was a show that uh, contestants get dropped off in these remote and dangerous parts of the world, and of course they're playing for like half a million dollars, you know, and it's, it's essentially whoever can stay the longest and survive the longest wins. And they're allowed to bring certain things in their packs as they, you know, as they prepare for this. And you might think one of the most important things that someone could bring is a fire starter. Or some sort of matches or something like that. And there, there are various schools of thought in this. Some guys are like, no, I'm not giving up space in my pack for a fire starter. I'm going to start it myself, the old-fashioned way. And they get the whole, you know, the, the spindle and the hand drill thing, and they, they get it going. And so they, they do this for it seems like six or seven hours until they get like a little tiny ember. And then they have all this other stuff standing by. They got everything ready to go. So they always have this, this handful of dry grass that they have right there. And they put that little tiny ember right in the middle of that dry grass. And then they just blow and they blow and they blow. And sooner or later, you start to see smoke. And then you start to see flames and this fire. I'm always amazed at how that fire. They have this raging fire then that started from, from a drill and friction and a tiny ember. And it reminds me, it's a tremendous picture, not only of the resilience of the human spirit, but how something so massive like a fire gets started from so tiny and so meager of a, of a beginning there. And likewise, our greatest achievements start from the smallest and most meager beginnings. I even think of Highlands Bible Church, what we do here from, from uh, 20 people meeting in a living room to just God growing a healthy vibrant and independent church body and we're excited for what God has for us and his perfect wisdom many times we don't even know what will come out of something that starts small when it's small it's scary it's uncertain you don't know where this is going we take risks but who do we take risks for what is the ultimate goal then of who we are serving and what kingdom we are serving, especially as servants in God's kingdom? And the parable of the talents this morning is going to teach us all of that and more today. So if you're not there already, head to Matthew chapter 25 as Len read for us. Very, very famous parable today. Undoubt you've, undoubtedly, you've probably heard a sermon on this at some point in your life Last week, we finished up our look at Matthew 24, where Jesus addresses the two questions of the disciples. They had two questions that started this whole thing in 24. The first one was, when will the temple be destroyed? And he answered that question, and he said, point blank, it will be in this generation. The people that are alive today will see it. And in fact, they did in 70 AD, when the Romans crushed the Jewish rebellion and destroyed the temple. But their second question was, when will you return? And that would he answered as well. And he answered it with a big fat, I don't know. I don't know, he says. And you don't either. No one else does. And we're not going to know. The point of it is not when I'm coming back. The point is to prepare now for my coming back. Because it's inevitable. I will return. So the point is, prepare now. Last week, he told two parables in order to drive that point home. This week, he's going to tell another parable talking about that very same thing, his return. So what do we do? Look again with me at verses 14. For it will be, again, his return, it. My return will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Okay, so context to unpack here. Jesus says again, continuing the the central theme here of his return, Jesus says, okay, my return, it will be like a man, and we've come to see that this man is the master of the house, probably more like an estate, right? He is the homeowner, he's the boss, he has servants, he has employees that are contractually bound to serve him and work in the estate. He's going away, and this is probably not for a long weekend with the wife, this is probably more like a couple months. To engage in other business and travel, as you can imagine, in the first century and that time was not an easy thing to do. So when somebody went on a journey, they went on a journey, and they were gone for an extended time. And he calls everybody together in the conference room and has a team meeting and divides up the responsibilities, and he says, look, here is all my wealth, and I'm going to give it to each one of you to manage while I am away on this journey in the form of talents. Okay, so what the heck is uh, talent? Literally in that culture at that time, it was the highest form of currency that you could imagine. If it was a literal talent, it was probably somewhere around 75 pounds of gold or another precious metal. That would be the equivalent of 20 years salary for a laborer. So an immense amount of money. You might remember this comes into play when Jesus uh, told the parable of the unforgiving servant. Same idea. And so it could be a a physical, heavy, 75-pound hunk of something precious, right? Or it could be like a banknote. It could be like a a stock portfolio or certs that would say, this is a certificate of how many talents that I actually have. Not exactly sure which one it is, but the point is it represents a ton of money and a ton of responsibility for then the servants to manage this. And think about it. If somebody has five talents think about how much money that would be at that time. Five times 20 years salary. One commentator notes that it wasn't so much about domestic management, but about high-level commercial responsibility. It's not like, hey guys, can you uh, let the dog out while I'm gone? And not that. It's like, hey, here's all of my money. I'm putting you in charge of it. It's a massive responsibility. There's a lot on the line. Obviously, this is all I have. This is my livelihood. So please manage this well. And as we'll see in a moment, he's, he's looking for them to make a return on investment. He's just not looking for them to keep it safe. He wants them to run businesses. He wants them to make money. And so he distributes these talents He says, each according to his ability. To one, he gave five talents. To another person, he gave two talents. And to the last guy, he gets one talent. Very important to note. He says, each to his own ability. Meaning each servant can handle a certain amount of responsibility. And who decides that? The master is the one that decides that. The master is the one that says, no, you get five. You only get two. You get one. Because conceivably, the master knows his servants, and the master knows how much responsibility they can handle. Right? We see two of these servants go at once, leaping into action, putting the money to work, running things so well that eventually the five-talent guy turns a profit of another five talents, and the two-talent guy does the same thing. He makes another two talents more. 100% ROI. Not bad. They're doing well. Again, this probably took a while. We can read this in context and we think like they went out and they did some deal and came back and they had, no, it's, it was probably months, if not a year or more that they did this. They're probably starting new businesses. They're probably starting new ventures. And you guys know who own your own business, how long it takes to actually turn a profit, right? This is what they're, they're doing, this, this level, right? And he gives them these things in line with their responsibilities, Right? But the third guy, the one talent guy, his big plan is I'm going I'm to dig a hole in my backyard and I'm going to hide this thing in my backyard so that it's safe so that when my master returns and I can give him back what was his. Weird for us, but a lot of times in that day and age in first century Greco-Roman culture wasn't always uncommon that you might actually dig something, dig a hole in the backyard rather and hide something. To keep it safe. Because you're the only one who knows it's there. Right? You're keeping it safe from thieves and whatnot. So he literally does this. is a dramatically different business plan than the first two guys. right? I'm just going to hide this in the backyard. Cool. Let's just pause here for a minute though. And let's, let's think that the master, again, was the one who decides who gets what. The master decides based on his assessment of the abilities of the servants, he decides who gets what parables are stories to communicate truth about God. And here's the first point. God ordains our situations according to his perfect wisdom. God ordains our situations according to his perfect wisdom. God is the master in this story. We are the servants. God is the one who sovereignly then ordains each of our situations according to his perfect wisdom. He gives out talents, if you will, to each one. He gives good gifts, he gives passions, he gives abilities. But before we zoom in on those, let's zoom out a little bit, and I want us to take a look at what every single person on the planet Earth is supposed to be doing, much like those three servants, in general, what they're supposed to be doing. He had something way back from creation. Page one of our Bibles, most likely, called the creation mandate. Look at Genesis 1. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Strange little passage when you think about it. Creeping things and creeping on the earth. What is he talking about there? That's not the point of exactly what those things are. But the point is that God has given man because he's been created in his image. He's given him the authority. He's given him dominion. As his vice ruler, every single human being has the same charge from God as we are made in his image. Our charge is to go and have dominion on the earth in the name of God. It's called the creation mandate. He created, note too, that he created male and female differently. In verse 27, it tells us he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created so. Gender, then, the way that God created us as male and female has everything to do with our our commissioning, our mandate, our charge, just like the master and the servants gave them specific things. Men <clears throat> men are the leaders of the family. So husbands set the vision and the direction in the home for exactly how they, with their talents, gifts, abilities, passions, giftings, will achieve this creation mandate. And the wives, as the helpmate, as the one who comes alongside, assists in submission to the husband in accomplishing this creation mandate, that's the way this is supposed to work. That's the way God, that's why he put both of those things together. And so let's realize then, completely contradictory to our current culture, what every human being on earth has been called to do is explicitly linked on page one of the Bible with our gender and sexuality from God. But in that, that parable, right, what, what there, this is essentially a microcosm of what that, what that master said to his servants. Go, in my name, go and do. Go and, and subdue things and, and make a profit and start businesses and bring me glory is what he says. That parable, did, did each one of those servants then get the same amount of talents to do that? No, they, they didn't. Again, we can see our current culture raising the red flag here and saying, that's not fair. Everybody should have the same things. Equality for everyone. It's like, no, that's not how it worked. Back in our parable, in Matthew 25... It, God makes it clear that some got five, or one got five, one got two, and one got one. We all have had teachers or parents or bosses who make the wrong call of how much we can handle, whether that's too much or whether that's even too little, saying, No, I deserve more. And you think that and you know that. And teachers, bosses, parents have made those wrong calls. Church, God never makes the wrong call as far as what we have and what we can handle. Because why? He does it. He ordains it in situations in His perfect wisdom. He does that in His perfect wisdom. God never gets it wrong. He gives us exactly what we need at the exact right time in His perfect sovereign plan to accomplish the creation mandate, to accomplish bringing glory to His name just like these servants were supposed to do to the Master. And for what? Again, the ultimate goal, just like the master in the parable, is what? The master's glory. The master's profit. The master's gain. He's, he's sending them out with his money. It's not their money. It's his money that they're, he's, they're being sent out. And so God also owns us. God also owns, of course, everything in creation. And he ordains different situations and different things for us, each according to our ability And only he knows that, and he never gets it wrong. And we hear this thing that enters in, and I just saw it on Facebook today, that God won't give us more than we can handle, which is just trash. There's just no other way to say it. Of course he's going to give us more than we can handle. Because who's the arbiter then in that situation of saying what we can handle and what we can't? Not him, us. Oh, God, I can't handle this. He's like, cool, you're not the one calling the shots here. I am. So, yes, you can. And I'm ordaining this situation in my perfect, holy will. We, can, we, we, we think we know what we can handle, but we usually can't. God is the one who knows perfectly. Like the master in the parable intentionally gives five talents and two talents and one talent. Sometimes, church, that's blessing and prosperity or more responsibility. And sometimes, the talents that we get from God are adversity and hardship and trials and pain. And each is perfectly given in his wisdom. If a situation is in your life, it's in there because God has ordained it. Got to remember that. It's like the number one pastoral question that I got. I wonder if God is at work. Yes, Well, you haven't heard No, he's at work. He's always at work. He's allowed this situation to come into your life for his glory and your growth and holiness. Everything. Even the really, really bad stuff. Everything. Just like the master has allowed his servants to have five and two and one. Now, yes, I can hear you saying, yes, but we choose things. Yes, we choose things. We have free will. We have complete and total free will to jack up our lives, right? We can make really, really bad choices. And what's that going to do? That's just going to mung up the wheels as we continue to go. It's just going to make it all the more harder to do what God has called us to do. But praise God that we serve a God that redeems, that works in the middle of that, that doesn't say, oh, well, Mike, you screwed that up. I tried to have you do this, but you blew it. That was a really dumb choice. So let me know when you're finished wallowing in the mud and then we can get back to making you a better disciple. He doesn't say that. He's right there in the middle with it. He goes, yeah, you made that choice. I knew you were going to make that choice. That was a sinful, stupid choice. And I make them. He says, but I'm right here with you. And we're still, the mission's still on and I'm still going to work through you and I'm going to give you the strength to do it. Just, by the way, stop making dumb choices, Mike. right? continue, like grow in this. That's the idea. We make a dumb choice. We get all messed up, you know, that we probably shouldn't do that again. Let's try and not do that again. We should learn, We should grow in holiness and maturity. So church, situations are not random or arbitrary. Every situation is ordained by God with His perfect wisdom God has a goal in mind, just like the master has a goal in mind with his service. And that's what he talks about next. Look at verse 19 of Matthew 25. Now, after a long time, right, the long time, the, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So, pause there. After a long time, the master returns. Notice what? Did he tell them when he's returning? Just like Jesus. So again, the backdrop of Jesus' return here. That's what this parable is teaching us still. The master returns suddenly, unexpectedly, after a long time. And what does the master want? The master wants a report. The master wants a status update. The master wants, for you corporate nerds, performance appraisal time. Let's go. We're gonna we're gonna look at all your goals and we're gonna see how you did. Unless he calls all the servants together. The first guy, the five-talent guy, comes in and says, Master, business is great. I doubled your profits. You gave me five talents. Here are five more. Now you have ten. Same thing happens with the two-talent guy. Business was great. I made two more talents. Now you have four talents total. He is thrilled with each. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have, did, you have done well with what you've had. So I'm promoting you, he says. He says, enter into the joy of your master, which is a very Hebrew way of saying, I'm really happy with you, and you should be happy that I'm happy with you. But also then, we see this kind of hint about the kingdom, right? Enter into the joy of your master, kind of like a hint of entering into the eternal kingdom of God, where one day we will be with God forever in perfect happiness. Same scenario, of course, the... the, the, Happened both times, with the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy. But what about Mr. One Talent? Yeah, that's a, that meeting doesn't go so well. Look at, look at verse 24. He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground here have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and you gathered where I scattered no seed. He says, Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. And one more in verse 28. We'll pick that up too. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. Welp, that didn't go well at all. That was a much different meeting than the first guy's. This guy with his big plan about this, this is it. This was my big plan. I hit it in the ground, and here it is. It's a little dirty, but it's still yours. You still have your one talent. Right? I, I give it back to you. And Mr. One Talent, what does he do? He starts laying down the excuses immediately. He Well, "I knew you were a harsh man. I knew you were—you reaped where you didn't sow, and you—you you, sca- you gathered where you didn't scatter any seed. So I just buried the money." All that is a is a Hebrew way of saying you expect too much of people. You're a harsh man. You exploit other people. You want us to do your work for you. Like you didn't do this work, we did this work. You're a harsh man. I was afraid, and so. I just buried it in the ground, and here it is. Take what's yours. He definitely did not understand the assignment. The point was to make his master money, not just to keep it safe. His point was to, to get profit out of this, not just bury the money in the backyard. And worse yet, he turns around and he blames the master. He's like, you know what, boss? When you think about it, this is actually your fault. Because if you weren't so hard... If you weren't so mean, then maybe I would be a little bit more motivated to do, you know, what you told me to do. Carson writes that the servant is accusing the master of exploiting the labor of others. The master is having none of it. He says, you think I'm harsh? You, you, under, you understood me to be harsh? Okay, well, here's an idea. Why didn't you take it down to PNC Bank on 94 and just put it in the bank? Like, then maybe I would have at least gotten a little bit of interest out of this deal. That's safe. Like, how hard is that? You go right out of the deposit slip, you see the nice lady, you put it in the bank, you walk away. I would have gotten some interest on this, but you, you didn't even do that. You were too scared to even do that. All you did was bury it in the backyard, so I got nothing out of this. And he orders that one talent be taken away from him and given to the one with 10 talents. Can you believe this guy? blaming the master for his laziness. It's everyone else's fault, like our culture today, chock full of professional victims who refuse to take responsibility. It seems that his servant has come down with a near-terminal case of the if-onlys. If only you weren't so mean, I would have done more. If only you weren't so unreasonable, I could have done more. If only I was like one of those guys that had the five talents. Then you would, man, you would have seen what I would have done with five talents. If only, if only, if only, if only. That's that's the road he's marching down. He says, Master, it's not my fault. It's your fault. It's the situation's fault. It's what you gave me. It's society's fault. It's my family background's fault. The master gave each servant according to their ability, and he expects a profit based on their ability. He didn't yell at the two-talent guy because he only made two talents, right? He didn't say, why don't you make five talents like him? No, he praised that guy. He doesn't expect out of his servants any more than is reasonable. But he does expect multiplication. He does expect growth. So here's the point. God expects us to multiply what he has given us for his glory. God expects us to multiply what he has given us for his glory. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, says it like this, Christ keeps no servants to be idle, which is Puritan speak of you shouldn't be idle if you're in Christ. Christ keeps no servants to be idle, They have received their all from him, and they have nothing to call their own but sin. Our receiving from Christ is in order to be working for him. Church, and we as Protestants have this knee-jerk reaction. I can feel some of you like, oh, talking about talking about works. We're Protestants, we don't do works. Those are the Roman Catholics. They're the ones trying to earn their way into heaven by checking all the boxes and going to all the masses and the confirmations. That's not us. Nope, nope, nope. We are saved by grace through faith, through Christ alone, right? And then what? We're just supposed to be nice and not try and cuss or or start any fights with our neighbors. No, no, no. We are saved not by good works, but we are certainly saved for good works that the Father has prepared in advance for us to do. Church, we are way too afraid of getting to work sometimes. We really are. We think that, that Christianity is just this emotional, personal experience that we've had with God and then we just kind of keep it in our heart and try to be the best person that we could be instead of what this parable teaches us. No, you've got to get to work. Not for your salvation, but because of your salvation. Not for your salvation, but from your salvation. Because God says, I want to I see a return on what I have given you. We're called to get to work to multiply what God has given us for his glory. So remember that creation mandate. Yeah, there's a little bit more to it. I'll read the whole thing just to put it in perspective. Then God said in verse 26 of Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. I wish I had dominion over the fish of the sea sometimes. (laughs) And over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Watch this. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did you catch that? He says, this is your mission. And now, because of what I've created you with in my image, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Church, we are called to take dominion for the glory of the King. We have a mission, we have a charge. To build, to marry, to make families, to take jobs, to start a business, to create art, to write books, to go to school, to be trained, to do more things, whatever. Multiply what God has given us. And so what has God given you and how are you multiplying that for his glory? Our gifts, our passions, our abilities are not meant to terminate on ourselves, they're meant to be used in this creation mandate to go and fill the earth with the knowledge of the king just like the servants were to go and fill the earth with the knowledge of the master and multiply what he has given them. Take marriage, for example. I ask the couple usually in the first session, why are you guys getting married? And then they're totally panicked because they know it's a trick question, which it is. And eventually the one guy just kind of gives me that look like, are you kidding? Like, look at her. Like, I'm not going to do any better. Like, she said, yes. That's what we're going with. And I'm going to do this quick before she changes her mind. Like, that's why we're getting married, right? But then you also have, like, other, other answers, right? Well, do you know how much it costs to live in New Jersey? Like, two salaries. Like, now I can at least afford somewhat of a place to live, right? Or maybe I just really always wanted to have a family just really always wanted to have kids i just really always wanted to have a good marriage i just really always wanted to get married right or maybe the the worst reason of all which i call the jerry maguire reason which if you've seen the movie you'll understand is that you complete me that is there's no possible way that one human being can complete another human being it's impossible it's too much pressure we're sinners i hope you realize that those are all terrible reasons to get married There's only one biblical reason for getting married, and I tell couples this. Because why? Because you can glorify God more together than you can apart. Because by coming together, you can multiply your efforts, you can multiply your resources, you can multiply your gifts, talents, abilities for what? For the glory of God. That's why you get married. Okay, she's beautiful. That's good, too. There needs to be some sort of that, too, right? But that's why you get married. Because you come together to multiply for God's glory. How are our marriages multiplying for the glory of God? An obvious example is having babies, right? Raising them in the fear and the admission, admonition of the Lord. Right? Note something really important here. He specifically then ordains our situations, our gifts, our passions and abilities. And again, he won't expect more than what he has given us. Again, the master doesn't berate the two-talent guy for only making two more talents. But the third servant didn't understand the master. He didn't understand the assignment. The third ser- He got it all wrong. He got the master all wrong. And that speaks to such a huge spiritual point. Do we understand God correctly? Do we see God as he truly is? Do we see God as our heavenly father? Do we see our, our, his, his graciousness in creating us in his image and giving us everything that we have in order to go throughout the earth and take dominion? Do we see that? Or, or, or do we think he's some big meanie up in the sky who has dealt you a bad hand? Church, he hasn't. He has sovereignly ordained what is coming to pass and he wants you to multiply it for his glory. And again, we can certainly complicate things. And there are trials that come upon us that we're just like, okay, I can can certainly mess up my own life, but I did nothing to deserve that one, right? They'll just come into our lives, and then we have to trust who God is. We have to trust his character when we can't see his plan. All the more reason, then, why? To strive after a life of holiness and spiritual maturity and devotion to him through the local church. Why do we make immature disciples here? To multiply what God has given us for his glory. Why do we, each of us get up and go to work every day? Why do we raise the kiddos every day? Or why do we go to school and grind it out, hopefully to multiply what we have for God's glory? And sometimes we think, yeah, well, that's the ideal, Pastor Mike, but I'm not much of a risk taker. I'm more like the hide the talent in the backyard kind of guy. Well, you see, here's the thing this is not an option. And there are consequences for not obeying God in this. Look at verse 29. He says, For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our society just rails against this idea. They think it's ridiculous and maybe some of us are struggling with it too. The master took the one talent away from the poor, victimized, oppressed servant and gave it to the successful, cool, now very rich servant. Right? That's not fair. The war of the classes, I can hear Karl Marx screaming that from the grave. Right? Look at the rich, they're oppressing the poor. But notice something, we have a command to multiply what we've been given by God for his glory in light of what? What's coming? What did he just say in those two verses? Judgment. He's coming back, and he's coming back, and he wants an assessment, and judgment awaits. There are rewards for being a good and faithful servant, and think about that. We hear that all the time, right, at funerals, right? Hopefully they they hear that well done, good and faithful servant. What is a good and faithful servant? This passage tells us what a good and faithful servant is. Someone who multiplies what he's been given for God's glory. Right? That's what a good and faithful servant is. And we need to prepare for that now. We want people to say that at our funerals, don't we? We want them to have confidence that the Lord is saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And like we've been saying the whole time in light of Jesus' return, prepare now for that. Take dominion. Do multiply what God has given you for his glory. If you do, you'll be rewarded. To him who has more will be given in abundance. Ever wonder why things just seem to be going well for some people? This is kind of why. Like They understand this. They get this. They get that they've been given these things and their mission is not to bring glory to themselves but to bring glory to God. Are those people immune to adversity and trial? No, of course not. They have their own share of immunity, uh, adversity and, and trials and things like that. Right? But generally, this is one of those general life principles, really deep theological truths I'm about to dump on you now. Generally, if you live your life the way God tells you to live your life, generally, it's going to go better for you than if you don't. Like, that's just deep theological truth, right? right? Cookies on the bottom shelf. If you do what God tells you to do, generally, it's going to go better for you than if you don't. It's not an ironclad promise because sin is in the world and sin affects everything. But who are we serving here? Who do we trust in the midst of that? Because if we don't obey God, there is Judgment. To the one who has not, even the little he has will be taken away from him. And verse 30 ends this parable again with a reference to the punishment of eternal hell. Just like we've talked about for the last two weeks. The worthless servant who buried his master's money out of fear will have it taken away, given to the one who has ten talents, and then he will be thrown into hell. Outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's realize one huge truth If we live in America in 2022, we're way closer to the five-talent guy than we are anybody else. We've been given so much. Spurgeon puts it very powerfully. If it's wrong to hide one talent, it's much more wrong to hide two talents, and far worse to dig in the earth and bury five. We've been given so much, church. This parable is told against the backdrop of judgment of the unfaithful and the wicked Pharisees and scribes, right? Of course, Jesus is still still shouting out to them, saying the Pharisees and the scribes didn't do that. Pharisees and the scribes twisted it to make it all about themselves, and they will receive judgment. But church, we will all stand before God one day, and the master will want an account of what we did with what he gave us so here's this convicting point. God will judge us for our achievements. God will judge us for our achievements. And I can feel you getting squirrely there on that one. I got squirrely on that one. I'm like, maybe there's another word I can use. I tried to swap in faithfulness, but that just didn't seem to have the weight that fit this passage. God will judge us for our achievements. Okay, first major clarification here. Christians will not be judged for sin. Why won't Christians be judged for sin? Because it's on the cross of Jesus Christ. We just sung it. Every single sin, right? God's wrath has been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ and it is applied to our hearts the moment that we put our faith in Jesus Christ. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are then covered by the blood of Jesus. So we will not stand before God and be judged for our sin, if you are not a believer, I do have to tell you that you will stand before God and you will be judged for your sin. Sin has to be paid. It's either going to be paid one of two ways. It's either going to be paid on the cross of Christ, or it's going to be paid by someone else—you in hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness. Right. So we, we've got to, when we start talking about judgment, we've got to realize that critical distinction. But parables like this teach us clearly that God's servants will be judged for their achievements. Let's go back to the creation mandate. Husbands, one day we are going to stand before God. And he's going to say, what did you do with the wife that I gave you? Did you, did you love her well? Did you, did you through, through the way that you love her, cause her to be a better Christian, a more mature Christian, did you lead her well? Did you lead her gently? What did you do with the children that I gave you? Did, you? did you bring them up in the fear and the instruction and the admonition of the Lord? What did you do with the career I gave you? What did you do with the house that I gave you? Wives, what did you do with the husband that I gave you? Did you submit in light of the creation mandate as one flesh for the glory of God? Did you use your talents, gifts, and abilities and passions in light of that? Church, how are we using our money, our houses, our cars, our careers, whatever, fill in the blank, are we multiplying all that for the glory of God? Because there is judgment. The master will want an account for what he did with what he's been given, he's given to us. Like the one talent servant, we have no basis to stand before God and say, yeah, well, God, if you gave me a better spouse, I could have done more. Or if you gave me a better job, I I could have done more. If you gave me more money or better health or blank, I could have done more. I knew you to be a harsh God, so I, I, I didn't even want to think about trying anything for you because I didn't want to be judged for something that I would fail at. Let this parable wash all of that out of your minds, please. God gives us exactly what you need to multiply for his glory in your perfect situation through his perfect wisdom. God gives us exactly what we need. How much do we need to own for our own sinfulness and our own unwise decisions that have complicated things? And what is it that is you this morning? And believe me, we, we all have made those bad decisions. If that is you this morning where you're like, yeah, well, okay, if that never happened in my life, if I never made that bad decision, I would certainly be in a better position. And I'm going to remind you again of the grace of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the only one that can redeem. We can make bad decisions. We can make sinful decisions. We can do all of that, right? And that's not his will for us, but he never abandons his children. And he says, yeah, you made that bad decision, but I'm still with you. Get up. Let's go. Yes, I have forgiven you. Get up. Let's go. Back on the mission. Receive the grace and the forgiveness to go on and do all you can by the power of the Holy Spirit to multiply what God has given you. But church, this is another parable again in the shadow of the return of Jesus and the final judgment. Just like the servants, we don't know when he's going to return. But when he does, he will call us to account. I believe, and this is convicting for me, I believe, and I'm sure of it because of scripture, that we will experience loss on that day. When we are standing before God himself, and he opens the books and said, this is what your life was about. This is where you spent all your energies. This is where you directed all your emotions. This is what you did with your money. This is what you did, all that stuff. I believe I'm going to feel loss in my heart, and I believe every single person will. That little bit of, mm, if I had only a taken it a little bit more seriously. If I'd only realized what was at stake, if I'd only realized that all of this is meant to glorify God, if I'd only not been so distracted by this world and its comforts and its entertainment and all of that. Paul talks about this very thing in 1 Corinthians 3, just so you know I'm not making this up. 1 Corinthians 3 and... Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test, watch this, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Sometimes people use this passage to say, I don't care if I get into heaven with third degree burns and all my clothes are burned off me and I smell like smoke, I'm in heaven. That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about what sort of reward will you get for what you have done with what God has given you. And at that moment, when we're standing before him, we will realize, man, there could have been so much more if I had just taken this more seriously. We can't use this passage to justify spiritual laziness. Jesus is our master, and when Jesus returns, he will call us to give an account. So here's the big idea if I land the plane. What God has given us, we need to put to work for his kingdom. What God has given us, we need to put to work for his kingdom. Imagine standing before God and saying, thank you for the gift of salvation. I kept it to myself, mostly. I hid it in the backyard. I never really did anything. I believed it. I believed it, God. I believed it with everything I had, but I I never really shared it with anybody. I never really matured. I never really grew. I never really served you. Thank you for Jesus. I I, I kept him to myself, mostly. Thank you for the gifts, the passions, the abilities you gave me. I, I pretty much buried them in the backyard. Straight up, church. This is hard to hear. I know. Where are we, and I include me, where are we being spiritually lazy? Where are you wanting to serve in the church that you aren't? Why haven't you committed to membership? Is Christianity to you more of a personal faith than the creation mandate? Where are you taking risks for the kingdom of God? With what he's given you, where are you putting it all to work for his glory? Young adults, students, where are you setting your sights? What school or career do you want and why? Think now wisely how you can maximize what God has given you for his glory and put it to work for his kingdom. Think about that. Think about it when you're going to school. What am I going to use this for? For God's glory. Not just what am I going to do with this so I can make money. We can also see how this all means so much in light of the return of Jesus. What if we're so preoccupied with knowing when Jesus returns that we never get busy actually getting to work before his return? It's not about just grinding it out. And one commentator says it this way, it's not enough for Jesus' followers just to hang in there and wait for the end. They must see themselves as servants who improve what their master entrusts to them. Failure to do so proves they cannot really be valued as disciples at all. That's why we talk judgment. Because it shows where our heart is. It shows what we believe about what God has given us. It shows what we believe about what we've been given What is your hope when Jesus returns? Is it simply escape from this world or are you looking forward to standing before him as terrifying as that is going to be and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Church, we have to keep our eyes on the goal. We can't blame the world, we can't blame our choices, we can't blame whatever else is going on in the world, what God has given us, we must put to work for his kingdom. And so I'll ask it again, where do we need to get to work? Ask yourself, whose kingdom are we building? Is it your own? Is it your company's? Is it yours? Is it your family's? Church, we aren't called to play it safe. The kingdom of God, the church, is meant to be on the offensive, going against, storming the gates of hell, and they will not stand against it. And Paul wrote a famous encouragement to his young protege, Timothy. And as I wrap it up, look at 2 Timothy 1, 4 through 7. Paul writing this to to a, a young, scared, intimidated young pastor. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, he's encouraging him, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your father, mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you, watch this, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, not like the one talent servant, but of power and of love and of self-control. Have that little ember that God gives us. What are we doing to blow that into flame and to set the fire, to set the world on fire for God's kingdom? Father, we we know that this word is tough. We know that that when we, we start to think about our kind of achievements, Lord, it, it it causes us to be uneasy. And we just say again, we are so thankful. That your love for us is not based on what we do. You love us unconditionally. You lavished your son Jesus upon us in all grace and mercy. We did nothing to deserve salvation, but yet you gave us Jesus. Lord, let us, let us think about that as the first and foremost way that you have equipped us for what you've called us to do. Well, Lord, let us feel a little bit of the weight of this. Let us feel, let us take some assessment in our lives and say, well, what do I need to be doing? What, what do I need to be multiplying for your glory, especially in light of your return, especially in light of judgment, especially in light of how good you have been to us. And Lord, I know that there are people in this room that are going through very hard things, but there's no one that can't say that you've not been overwhelmingly good to us. You have given us breath. You have given us life. You've given us salvation through faith in Jesus' name. You have given us the Holy Spirit to equip us and empower us to do what you've called us to do. I pray that we would use all of that and all of the passions, the gifts, and abilities that you've given us, Lord, to put what we have to work for your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.